0: This morning we will be looking at Amos chapter 6. We'll be looking at the entirety of the chapter today. Amos is a powerful book, but it is also a short book. We are already well more than halfway through this book of the great prophet. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is sufficient. The word of the Lord is authoritative, and this is because the word of the Lord is completely without error. Amos, chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes, "'Pass over to Kalna and see, "'and from there go over to Hamath the Great, "'then go down to Gath of the Philistines. "'Are you better than these kingdoms? "'Or is their territory greater than your territory? "'O you who put far away the day of disaster "'and bring near the seat of violence. "'Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory!' and stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there any one with you? He shall say, "No." And he shall say, "Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits." Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel," declares the Lord, the God of hosts, "and you and they shall oppress you, from Libo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. <coughs> Heavenly Father. Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us that you are aware of all that we do, that you would remind us, O Lord, that you do not wink at sin, that you would remind us, O Lord, that there is also indeed hope, hope for sin, hope that is found in repentance hope that is found in faith. And we ask, O Lord, that you would stir us up even now by the words of Amos to repentance and faith. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was ten years ago on this very day that our view of the world changed completely. Do you remember that day? Those of you that are perhaps 15 or older? Before that day, we all believed that we were safe. Now, I don't mean perfectly safe. We knew people who had diseases. Perhaps we were even sick or ill. We had heard stories or perhaps even had happened to us disasters like fire or hurricane. We knew relatives and friends that had served overseas and perhaps even given their life for our nation. But there was a sense in which we went about our ordinary days not thinking that anything could happen to us. We didn't wake up saying, I wonder if a lightning strike will set my house on fire. I wonder if the building that I'm in will blow up. I wonder if the car that I'm driving will go off the road with disaster. But after this day ten years ago, we were reminded that we are not in control, that we are not safe, that we are not powerful, that we depend on the Lord God in every situation, in something as simple as sitting at a desk, typing at a computer. Disaster can strike. The idea that we would not be safe anymore became believable. This is something that we know has changed our life. It has changed, perhaps, the way that you travel, not just in how you go through security, but whether you travel. It has changed the way in which we think about family. Perhaps you, like me, watched some of the material on the anniversary of 9-11 and heard the phone calls, the messages that were left by spouses on planes. I love you. You just need to know, tell the kids, I love them. There was a change that happened because we realized that we were not in control. And while we had the life that the Lord had given to us, we must do things like love our spouses, love our children, seek our Lord. I remember after this first happened, speaking with friends. It was an experience very personal for me. I had worked just some nine months earlier in the Twin Towers for three straight days closing a a deal. I knew dozens of people personally at one of the law firms. And then as the story began to unfold, you may recall that that fourth plane, Flight 93, that crashed in Pennsylvania, where it overflew was Cleveland, Ohio, where I worked. In a high rise. And they evacuated the downtown area. And as I was on my way home. I spoke to a few of my fellow elders. And we decided we had to have a prayer meeting. That night. For the people of God. And we did. And it was a powerful time of prayer. And I remember in the weeks afterwards. Speaking with people saying. Revival will surely come to America now. America will surely see. That they must seek God. That those who reject God, are murderers and liars. This is a turning point in our history. And I remember perhaps in me, the cynical lawyer came out and I said, the people will forget about this in a year. And they did. Not about the attack, but about the God who was in charge. They stopped seeking Him. And you see, that is what we must focus on this morning. Not on wistful memories, but on the Lord God Himself. Because you see, that is what is happening here to the people of Israel and Amos. Amos is describing for them that they must wake up from their slumber. They must seek the living God. That they are not in control and the whole world is about to change. It is as if the prophet himself had come on August 10th, 2001 and said to the American people, You must repent. And they went on their merry way. Would that we would hear this message today and be the shining beacon, the city on a hill that God has made us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this call then this morning is first and foremost to... to tell us that it is not right to be asleep to reality. Amos is warning Israel that they are asleep to reality. And then secondly, he gives them a call to awaken to a warning. They are asleep, but they must awaken. And then finally, the answer to the burning question. What must I do? What must I do? Asleep to reality, awakened to a warning, and the answer to a question. Well, let's look then and see what it means to be asleep to reality. You hear much now about how we were asleep in the days before 9-11, when we didn't think much of security or traveling. And now, apparently, we are so much more awake. We do very critical and important things like make people take their shoes off in airplane lines. We do things like we speak about what it means to be inclusive. But in reality, we as a nation, and I believe we as a church are as asleep at times as Israel is in Amos Day. And it's because there is a false security that is found, a false security here for the Israelites. And if we are not careful for us as well in the church, do you see what Amos says as he begins? Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. They are falsely secure because they have a false mindset. Zion is Amos' homeland of Judah. It is another name for Jerusalem. And he is reminding the church, he's reminding Israel, that they are at ease because they think that God owes them. They believe that because they are the people of God that nothing ill will befall them and that they can do whatever they want because God is obligated to love them. It's a false mindset. We are not loved by God because we are lovable, brethren. We are loved by God because He has set His love on an unlovely people. Think about Israel. It was the smallest, meanest, nastiest people in the world. And God redeemed them from death and slavery to fashion them into a people to carry His image into the world. So it is with the church. What a ragtag group we are. People from every nation, every walk of life, Men, women, children, God has fashioned us together into a people regardless of where we live or what hobbies we have or what homes we own. He has fashioned us into his people because he desires it to be so. If we begin to think, if we continue to think that the Lord must bless us, must bless the church, must bless the American church, must bless Christ church, because of how faithful we are, how good we are, how much we have studied, we have lost our way. That's not to say that the Lord will not bless us. It's not to say that we should not labor. But those two things are not cause and effect. Once we do that, we have a false sense of security. It's similar in Samaria as well. He says, Woe to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Now, you need to understand that Samaria was a fortress, it was virtually impossible to take by siege because it was up on a mountain and the only way up was through a winding road up that mountain. And the Israelites, those who dwelt in Samaria in the capital, were sure they were completely secure because of their own power. Can't we fall victim to that as well? Are we secure this morning here because of aircraft carriers and tanks nuclear weapons or because the Lord God himself has seen fit to protect us are we secure in our families because we have done wise budgeting are we secure in our families because we get regular checkups at the doctor are we secure in our families because we have the perfect book plan and manual for raising children no all of those things, in every one of those things, all of our security is found in the Lord God himself. As soon as we lose sight of that, we begin to fall asleep to the reality, and we begin then to procrastinate about what reality is. Do you see this here in, in verse 3? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. You see, the Israelites... They knew somewhere out there was a judgment. They knew in their hearts that somewhere there would be a calling, a reckoning. But they would think about it and say, Oh, well, you know, that's a long way off. They treated eternality like the way many of us treat homework assignments. You know what I mean. You've done it. Your teacher says... This is due two weeks from now. And you say to yourself, two weeks, that's that's forever. I can do what I want. And then about three or four days later, someone will remind you and say, you know, shouldn't you get started on that project? No, I got a week and a half. That's, That's forever. The days will tick away. And then it's just a few days before they're due. And you say to yourself, you know, I really should get started, but it is a lot of work. There's always tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and a panic. And you see, this is what Amos says. This is how Israel was treating judgment before God. Yeah, I know we shouldn't sin, and I know there's so many things we need to do. We're not being just. But, you know, God's still a ways off. Is that how you view the Lord God? Because you see, just as we know and think about the fact that those people in those buildings, on those planes, were not promised tomorrow ten years ago, we are not promised tomorrow today. It doesn't matter what your health is. It doesn't matter if you're traveling or not. If the Lord God seeks to call you to account, He can do it right now. Don't procrastinate. Don't put off reckoning with God. If you have not come to a place right now where you have turned over the entirety of your life to the Lord, if you have not said, I can't do anything, I need Jesus to do everything, it is only by Him paying for my sins because I'm rotten, I'm wicked, I have not done what I should, then there is no better time than right now. You don't even need to wait until after the sermon to speak to me. Right this very moment, you can have a reckoning with your God. I give you permission to tune me out for the next 10 minutes, to close your eyes and to pray to your Lord that he would save you. But this is true also of the believer, isn't it? When is the best day to give up sin? Tomorrow, isn't it? It's not too far away, but just not quite yet. Yet. Tomorrow is a perfect day to give up that sin. But God calls you to do it now because, you see, Israel had become a place where they had been so blind to sin, so blind to judgment, that they actually became a place with a real reign of terror. That's what I think Amos means when he says they have brought near the seat of violence. They have enthroned violence. Remember, from our study in 1st and 2nd Kings, that during this period of time, during about the length of time of the Bush administration and the Obama administration, there had been five kings and three of them had been murdered. And here in 2nd Kings 15 is a verse that summarizes this period. At that time, Menahim sacked Tipsah and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on, because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked it and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. Destruction, murder, death. A false sense of security, a putting off of a reckoning, but also look at what epitomized Israel. A self-indulgent attitude. Look at verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches. They're laying out their couch potatoes, waiting for people to wait on them. They're too interested in the TV to spend time with God. They're too interested in curling up with a romance novel to spend time with God. There's a laziness about them. There's also a gluttony about them. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Now, imagine how this would offend Amos the shepherd. They take the choicest beasts who are young and not full-grown, who could produce milk, who could produce progeny, and in order to get that morsel, they eat them up. Are we like that? If we're honest with ourselves, we are a consumption culture. And I don't just mean out there at the mall and at Amazon.com. Why do most people attend the church they attend? Because it provides them with what they want. The music they want. The location they want. The people they want to be with. We live in a consumer culture. The church in America has become consumer-driven. It was not so long ago that the church you went to was the only one there was. But you see, as a people, we are prone to laziness, to gluttony, and even to vanity. Look at verse 6. They drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. They are... Goblets aren't enough for them. They've got to have big punch bowls of wine. And they have to they have to uh, stretch themselves out. They have to anoint themselves with oils. This is perfume and deodorant. They are more concerned about how they smell to each other than to the living God. It's all superficial. Amos says, you are asleep, and as a result, you must wake up. And he gives them this warning. He awakens them to a warning. And it's as if he's shouting to them. He says, you must pay attention. That is the job of the prophet, of the preacher. You must pay attention. Because right now they are being careless. Look at verse 5. They sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. They invent instruments like David. You see, they're sitting around on their couches with their punch bowls full of wine, and they are saying to themselves, you know, we're a lot like David. Let's play the harp like David did. Let's make up a psalm like David did. And in reality, they're nothing at all like the man after God's own heart. But you see, they have so fooled themselves They are so asleep that they are careless. They are indifferent. All of these things occupy their time, but at the end of verse 6, they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Are you grieved over the ruin of the church? Does it pain you to watch a man get up and say he's a minister of the gospel and say, well, I don't believe in all this blood of Jesus stuff. Oh, and the Bible, you know, it's helpful, but it's not really the word of God. Does that pain you? You see, Amos is driving the point home here. Do you notice what he does? Amos is, he is a brilliant preacher. He says, you don't know anything about the ruin of whom? Joseph. Now, why would he use Joseph? He could have said the ruin of Jacob or the ruin of Israel or any of the other tribes. Why does he pick Joseph? Do you remember what happened to Joseph? Do you remember how Joseph was thrown into a pit and he cried out for help and he was ignored, completely ignored by his brethren? You see, that's what Amos is saying, that not only... Are you not aware of what's going on? You are ignoring the cries of those who are beaten, downtrodden. You are ignoring the cries of the Lord God Himself as He calls you to repentance. Now, why is this? Is it because that they were materialistic? Is it because that they had sins that they delighted in, pleasures that they needed? I don't think so. You see, we can more easily, I think, as the church, excuse ourselves from these sins because we don't participate in the gross and obvious sins. But the sin here that they are participating in, what is driving them is, quite frankly, what drives you and me. And it's the sin of pride. It's a secret sin. It's a non-obvious sin. What is pride? Well, at its core, pride is not about who we are, but about what we think about ourselves. And isn't it very easy to think more of ourselves than we should? It must be because the Bible is full of admonitions not to do this. Paul himself directly says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but think more highly of others. Put others in front of you. But you see, we are bound to this sin, even like the Israelites. It is something that is a part of our sin nature and gets to us immediately. We don't need to be taught this. An infant is able to hold up his toy and say, My toy is better than yours. Isn't he? How far a cry is that from my car's better than yours? My house is better than yours. My church is better than yours. My intellect is better than yours. And we think somehow we get the credit. And you see, that's where Israel was. It was in the dangerous place of taking credit for what the Lord God had given to them. Taking credit for the Lord God restraining his judgment against them. What does pride do to us? Pride does to us what it did to the Israelites. It first and foremost makes us indifferent. We don't care about other people. Do you care whether the person who's waiting to get in line in the traffic jam gets in? Or are you tempted in the recesses of your heart to punch the accelerator and say, I got someplace to be. I don't know why he's over there anyway. He can get in later. Not a big thing, but I dare say something that we've all done. Pride makes us indifferent to the needs that others have. We know and we think about the wildfires that have been raging. But are you praying for families? Are you praying for firefighters? Are you helping and volunteering? Do you long to show your children that other people matter? You see, the Israelites didn't do this. Pride makes us indifferent, and as a result, it makes us irresponsible. We want to spend everything we have on ourselves. We think we are the most important. It goes back to what Amos says in verse 1. The notable men of the first of the nations... Look at this. Israel was certain they were the first. They were the notable men. They were the first of the nations. Look at verse 6. They anointed themselves with the finest oils, the first of the oils. But what they didn't count on was verse 7. That now, as a result of that, they shall be the first to go into exile. Pride makes us indifferent. It makes us irresponsible, but as a result, it also makes us oblivious to what is going on around us. Because if we really were aware, if we really were awake, we would understand what we see here in verse 8, that God hates pride. We all know and understand that God hates adultery. We know and understand that God hates theft, that God hates murder. But do we understand that God hates Pride, what puts us up first. The Lord God has sworn by himself, he can swear by no greater. Declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. We must reject pride, the kind of pride that makes us think that God loves us just a little bit more. Or the kind of pride that says, I don't need God. I don't need that crutch, Jesus. I can do things just fine on my own. Amos has news for you. No, you can't. Nothing that you have will stand of its own merit before the Lord. Well, if we were perhaps asleep and if we've been called to be awake, what then can we do? Now that we are awake, Amos provides us with the answer to the question. And the answer to the question is threefold and practical. First, we must see the danger. Secondly, we must see what is important. And third, we must repent. We must see the danger. The danger is that God not only hates pride, he will completely destroy it. Look at verse 9. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and he shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there anyone left? And the answer is no. It's complete destruction. No hope. Harken back to the events of ten years ago. Do you remember seeing and being perhaps completely as shocked as I was? Not just about the planes, but then when the first tower went down. And being shocked. And then I imagine the second thought that went through your mind was, no one will survive that. There are recordings of 911 calls happening at that moment screams destruction death you see there is no escape from god god is more sure than any disaster we must see the danger that is out there in order to avoid it what god has described here is he's saying not only are you secure in your might and your strength he says you will undergo such destruction. It will be like a siege where everyone is killed and you can't even properly bury people. No one survives. We must see God's hand in our lives pointing us to himself. 9-11 is a wake-up call to us, not as a judgment. I'm not here to stand and tell you that I know that the Lord did 911 because of sin in Las Vegas or Houston or New York City. But what we must understand is that that is part and parcel of the power of God, not just in the destruction, but it is only God's power that holds up anything. God doesn't need to send a hurricane to destroy his enemies, he simply stops them from breathing. We must wake up to the danger. And as a result, then, we must see what is important. You see, the Israelites had all of their priorities backwards. Look at verse 12. There's a series of interesting questions. Amos says, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Another way to translate that, dividing up the Hebrew words, is, do you plow the sea with oxen? The question is, how smart are you, Israel? Can you make it now so that horses can run on rocks? Can you get a plow with oxen and plant in the ocean? What is your technology? What is your intellect? What is your prowess? Look at verse 13. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not captured Karnim by our own strength? Maybe you're not proud or counting on your intelligence. Maybe you're counting on your physical prowess or your might. You see, God says... We cannot count on our own brilliance. We cannot count on our own might. It's, it's, again, great irony here. Do you rejoice in defeating Lodabar? Do you know what Lodabar means also in Hebrew? Nothing. Big deal, God says. You think you're such a big, powerful deal. No. No. We must instead see what is important and look to God's standard. We must see if we are turning justice into poison and righteousness into wormwood. We must seek to follow the path the Lord has set out for us. Every way in which the Lord gets our attention should drive us to our need, should drive us to this book, to know how we ought to live our lives we must see that God is completely sovereign and in control. Look at verse 14. I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, and they shall oppress you. The Israelites weren't aware this was going to happen. But even as Amos is speaking these words, God is building up the Assyrian to attack. So what do we do? What hope do we have as a church, as a nation. The only hope that we have is found in repentance. We must first and foremost turn from our sin. That is what Amos is telling Israel, and that is what he is telling you now. You must turn from your sin. And I mean specifically the sin that you have that you know, not just think, you know nobody else knows about the sin that you cherish that you won't even tell your spouse. The anger, the hate, the lying, whatever it is, you must turn and repent not just from the sins that will get you credit to turn and repent from, but from all sin. That is the only place where life is found. But we don't just turn from sin to something vaguely. We must turn to the Lord. Repentance is a turning from something to something. And if we only turn from sin, we will become people of despair. Because we will not have the means within us to keep sin at bay. We cannot kill sin alone. We must go to the sin killer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must turn from sin and to Christ. And If we do that the Lord and His power will be manifest in our lives. The last thing that we must do after having turned from sin and turned to Christ is we must get busy. Do you want it to be said of you that you Laid on an ivory bed? Or you lounged on a couch? Or you lazed about with songs? Or that you sat at a great feast and had big bowls of drink? Or do you want it to be said of you, the legacy of you and your life, that you sought to follow the Lord Jesus? That you sought to be fervent in prayer? Fervent in evangelism? This is the call of the church. We know Israel did not answer. But the church of Jesus Christ is up to the task of answering by the power of the Holy Spirit. I challenge you, I ask you this morning to look back upon your life and to count the times in which the Lord is getting your attention and to say, Lord, I will use that as a clarion call to follow Jesus and point others to Him. That is your chief end, to see that God gets the glory and that He is enjoyed by you and by others forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for the times in which you get our attention. Not because, Lord, we desire to hurt, not because we desire to see pain, but because, Lord, we know that there is only hope and life in you. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would point us to the Lord Jesus. That you would remind us that he has died for the sins of his people. And that we might repent, and we might believe, and we might long to be with him. We ask this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.